Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Happy Dr. J. Happy New Year! This is your wonderful pediatric infectious diseases and researcher, Doc, Dr. Santosh. Hello there, it's Dr. Ward, your ER MacGyver here. And as always, this is Proz the Sandman, making your dreams come true over the radio. First and foremost, gentlemen, welcome year. back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Be back. Before we get into what everyone's resolutions are... I have a special surprise. We brought on a guest to help us with our topic today, an endocrinologist. Let's introduce our specialist in hormones and all the things that happen inside your body that are goopy, Dr. VG. How you doing? Good. How are you? I am fantastic. So, gentlemen, lady, what is everyone's New Year's resolution? Mine was fulfilled the moment you all signed on on time tonight. <laughs> Easy to please, Dr. Josh. Low expectations. That's how I stay so happy. I actually did have a resolution to start exercising, etc. Failing so far, but uh, happily failing. You're beating the rush. The resolution fail day is statistically the second Tuesday in February when 90% of people give up on their resolutions, and that's based on data from a bunch of gyms and Foursquare and other fitness trackers that note a severe drop-off in attendance beginning on that date. So this year, February 8th, is uh, resolution give-up day. It's a good day. It's a good day. The most common resolution is diet or exercise. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But not in the nagging way that I'm sure you expect us all to, as in you should diet more, you should exercise more. Of course you should do those things. But you know that. You don't need to hear it from us. So 
Why did I bring on a special guest? Because this episode is going to be all about the things that you need to know for diet and nutrition, or as I like to call it, wishful <laughs> shrinking. Did you guys know that there have been poems dedicated to health and nutrition that date back to as early as the 13th century? Uh, poems about diet and nutrition. You're saying the 13th century. I would have thought it was... I think it's hard to imagine now writing a poem, poem about this, but in medieval days and times before, they wrote poems about just about everything. The Canterbury po uh, Tales were written in poem format. Everything was just... It was classier times. Yeah, so there was a poem known as the Regimen Sanitatis Sanatorum, or Salernitarium, which is the method of maintaining health in the city of Salerna. It's a 12th century Italian poem. Even though the book bears the name of a famous medieval medical school, which that's a whole other episode we can get into, it has such important things. Now, I'm going to read you a little bit of the translation, but here is some of the advice given out by the medical school. The whole school of Salerno wrote for the English king. If you want to be healthy, if you want to remain sound, take away your heavy cares and refrain from anger. Be sparing of undiluted wine. Eat little. Get up. After eating fine food, avoid afternoon naps. Do not retain your urine nor tightly compress your anus. Do these things well, and you shall live a long time. These three doctors will suffice. A joyful mind, rest, and a moderate diet. I'm uh, snapping my fingers right now. That's not very medieval. Yeah, yeah, that's very groovy. That's very that's groovy, groovy, yeah. Right, so guys, don't have a tightly retained urine or compressed anus. No, that's not how you ring way. in the new year. 364 lines, which cover things from basic hygiene, like washing your hands and face with cold water, all the way down to what things you should eat. Wheat, milk, and fresh cheese. Wine should be tested for smell, taste, and brightness. Most nutritious are the heavy white wines. So, VG, what can you tell us from an endocrine standpoint? What sort of health advice do you give to your patients? One size does not fit all. But the big thing is, is I hate using the word diet, and that's the word everyone uses, because <laughs> any sort of change you do, you have to do it the rest of your life, and diet is temporary, whereas a lifestyle is forever. So that's usually where I start. <laughs> I can easily spend 40 minutes trying to convince a person to undo some habits, but I'm working against 20, 30 years of habits actually super easy to even if you have a good habit to lose a habit because when Dr. Santos here was talking about going to exercising I was doing great I went for four months and then December happened no. and here I am do you have any tips on the way you approach speaking to other people to try to convince them to change their lifestyles you know is it a poetry form or is it you know yeah give us give us an endocrinology limerick <laughs> a limerick. I don't know if I'm that clever. But here's what I'm offering you. If if I see you in clinic and we're talking about lifestyle changes, it protects you against diabetes. It protects you against heart disease. I can even pull you off medications with weight loss. And I don't even have to do this with a magic pill. I'm basically offering you the world without using pills. And I'm so glad you brought pills up. In ancient days... Victors of battle ate the brains, the hearts, and the gonads of their enemies, thinking they contained important powers. Modern endocrinology, of course, has refined this into pill form. Do I get testosterone form now? <laughs> which is testosterone. <laughs> sure, human growth hormone is another one that's been marketed this way. 
many, many diabetic patients all are on some form of a pill. So VG is offering lifestyle changes that can help diminish the amount of pills you have to take. Or it sounds like, can you actually come off pills if you've been on them before? Can you go backwards? Absolutely. We have a lot of patients with even just losing 4% of your extra body weight can reduce the number of medications that they're on. That includes high blood pressure medications. That includes diabetes medications. That includes cholesterol medication. So I'm not even asking, you know, 50 pounds. I'm asking 10 so, pounds. So, Vigi, as I, I remember a little while back, all the way in medical school, I guess, so not, not a little bit, a lot while back, that I encountered a patient who had undergone gastric bypass surgery. And he told me he was yes. especially overjoyed about this type of procedure because, at least on the front end, he had been either borderline diabetic because of the gastric bypass. It actually dropped a lot of weight, and boom, you know, he came off of the sugar. So this is, a, I guess, a different way to think about it, right? This is without the without the surgery actually trying to change your lifestyle so that, you know, you don't need someone to cut into you and cut away part of your stomach in order for you to uh, eat properly. So here's the thing when people ask me about gastric bypass, because I work with those patients as well, is that everything we do is a tool. Ultimately, it comes down to behavior modification, and we have different tools and and toolboxes. So we have weight loss medications, we have surgery, we have diet plan. So you have, you know, like the commercial programs, Lindora, Weight Watchers. There are medically supervised programs that'll drop you to 800, 900 calories. Those are all options that are out there. But at the end of the day, these are all just tools trying to help you change your lifestyle. Now, you brought up 800 or 900 calories. So let's let's jump ahead. And before we get into maybe some of the ways that diets work or what things to take, let's start off with a little easy run-through lesson of how do you actually read the nutrition label on food? So you're talking about 800, 900 calories. What's that mean? How many calories should the average person be consuming in a day? So for most, this is a interesting misconception when you look at a food label it says on an average 2,000 calorie diet so it's they're assuming one size fits all but that's not true because a lot of what people need is actually based on their metabolism the metabolism is dictated by how much muscle mass you have so now that's different between a man and a woman so if you are a six foot tall man yeah 2,000 calories sounds about right now, for someone like myself who's just barely under 5'4", I don't need more than twelve to 1,300 calories per day. So it's actually a wide range. So for most women, we don't need more than twelve to 1,400 calories. For most men, you start pushing up to sixteen and 1,800 calories. Now, what is the difference in why men and women need different amounts of calories? So that depends on their muscle mass. So men, in general, just have more muscle. Muscle burns more calories in the body, so they need more calories to be inputted to maintain their body weight. Women, on the other hand, have 
lower muscle masses and higher percentage body fat. And that's just normal physiology. How does age or stage in your life come into um, come into your caloric needs? Like, let's say, if you were a teenager versus you're somewhere in your 20s or your 30s. I don't know about y'all, but after I turned <clears throat> north of 30, I, it just seems like my metabolism slowed down and I, I'm putting on weight. Here's the story of all of our lives right now. <laughs> it is true. The aging process does contribute to this, especially when you talk to women who are postmenopausal. Less calories with aging. Because what's happening is in the aging process, especially around the 50s, the muscle mass starts to slowly break down um, and the higher fat percentages start to go up. So people start to need less calories. So based on that, I think a lot of people are so used to think of everything as being strictly weight-based. I don't know if most people know exactly what their body fat percentage or muscle percentage would be. I know I certainly don't. What would be an easy way to sort of calculate that or figure that out? So the easiest way is there are some medical centers that actually have, or even gyms have this, they can do uh, bioimpedance analysis. And so they can actually figure out your percent body fat and how much... Wait a minute. Bio bio and what now analysis? Who's involving small children? <laughs> Biopedo. No, it's not a biopedo machine. It's a... It's a BIA. Bioimpedance analysis. So body composition. So it's pretty easy. You just step on a scale. Like you're just holding on to... There's different machines. One looks like an EKG machine a little bit. And they just put these little stickers on you. And they'll send a little current through... And based on the resistance, they can figure out how much fat you have in your body, how much muscle you have in your body, and you can kind of figure out from the muscle content what your metabolic rates are. Now, are these machines at places like Target or Walgreens, or do I have to make a doctor's appointment to learn what my percentage of body fat and muscle is? So not all physicians have these machines. These are more focused on people who are really focused on weight loss and bariatric centers would probably have them, but gyms, a lot of gyms have them. I've, my gym, I'm not going to mention the exact name, brought out the calipers. Oh, of no, they pinched you. They pinched you. <laughs> no. Yeah, they, where they pinch you uh, in, in certain parts of your body. How accurate do you think that is? I, I'm hoping you say that, that it's not very accurate. I mean, it'll give you an idea, but it's not the best method. I mean, the best method to know how much body fat or what your body composition is is actually from a DEXA. They can actually, like, shoot x-rays oh, and figure out how much fat radiation. muscle you have. Honestly, I think a mirror is oh, pretty no. good, too. But, well, uh, so that, I, I mean, that's, that's, that's an important point. Uh, Vigi, I'm... I think that it's fair to say that we have found in a good amount of the literature that relying on just looking at yourself or someone else looking at you is not a very good measure. Is that correct? That is true. People use BMI, body mass index, which is just a ratio of your weight and your height to figure out how overweight or obese somebody is, doesn't actually work when... And this goes along the lines of just looking at someone, because someone could be really big, but that sure. doesn't mean that it counts for how much muscle they have. I did a study with the Chicago Public Health Department where we weighed children in certain low-income areas and then asked their caretakers 
to rank them either as obese, overweight, underweight, or right about, about the right weight. And surprisingly, a large percentage of caretakers underestimated the weight and the uh, weight category, meaning a lot of obese children, their parents didn't even know that they were obese. If the perception is normal, it depends on how many people you're on and what their body habits is like. You know, we, we went to a number of low-income areas in the Chicago area and asked people just how fat their mama is. And I believe one child believed his mama was so fat that when she jumped up, she got stuck. That's a different show, Josh. That was definitely yeah. not what I did yeah. at, the, at the, the Chicago Public Health Department. They have problems with that. So how how do you read the nutrition label on food? The first thing, go ahead, everybody, go grab some food item that's in a box, whatever happens to be nearest to you. Uh, I am choosing between crispy broccoli florets and Pop-Tarts. I will not tell you which box I am holding. Here's what's interesting. Um, the FDA actually approved a change in the labels, so the labels are going to change fairly soon. So how are the labels going to change? So... Your serving sizes will now be in bold, which is important. The calories will be ultra bolded. You will not miss how many calories are in a serving. Under total carbohydrates, they're going to add under total sugars, added sugars into it also. So you will know how much added sugars are in the product. And they're taking out the vitamin A and the vitamin C from the food labels and adding in the vitamin D, calcium, and potassium in milligrams, micrograms, and the percent daily values. We're kind of putting aside micronutrients or the vitamins for which we don't have a very good body of work or data set, and we're adding back those things that we're finding where we do have good evidence and data. And that actually more reflects the American diet nowadays. I mean, how many of you have diagnosed uh, hypokalemia in someone? How many, when, and when was the last time you diagnosed scurvy? You know what I mean? <laughs> so vitamin C deficiency. Is, well, there was that pirate, pirate who came in. Other than Josh's pirate, vitamin C deficiency, I think, is just not as prevalent as vitamin D deficiency. A few summary points on how do you read the nutrition label on food. So look for both the serving size, the amount that they recommend you eat at one time, and the number of servings in the package. Then compare your portion size or the amount you actually eat to the serving size listed on the panel. So with this, what could be broccoli or Pop-Tarts, the serving size is one tart. I'm, I'm trying to keep it very scientific here. But if I were to eat the entire package, I would have had two servings, which would be, you know, that would both feed into my limit of 2,000 calories a day or a little bit less so since muscular. I'm not six feet. But I am very muscular. <laughs> as long as we're on the radio and no one can see. <laughs> For to a 2,000 calorie a day diet, a food item that has a 5% daily value of, say, fat will provide 5% of the total fat that a person consuming 2,000 calories a day should eat. A lot of this is going to end up being basic arithmetic. You don't have to do fancy math. You don't need a calculator. Um, you know, percent daily values are for the entire day. They're not just for one meal or snack. Obviously, you should eat less saturated fat, added sugars. That may help reduce your risk for chronic disease. The 2015 to 2020 dietary guidelines for Americans 
recommends consuming no more than 10% of your daily calories from added sugars. Okay, and foods with more than one ingredient have to have an ingredient list on the label. That's why you don't see ingredient lists on apples. They're not required to do it. Ingredients are listed in descending order by weight. So those in the largest amounts are listed first. A couple examples, fiber. Fiber is a type of complex carbohydrate, but it doesn't break down into glucose and therefore doesn't provide calories. So fiber, empty calories. Eat tons of fiber. Only plant foods provide them. Soluble fiber you may have heard, is the soft part of fruits, vegetables, and grains. What that does is it slows your digestion. It makes you feel more full because it takes longer to make through your digestive system. Insoluble fiber, which is what we usually recommend for old people, that's the tough skin of plant foods. It's difficult to chew, and because your body can't break it down, it speeds up digestion and relieves constipation. Most foods that are listed as being fibrous have a little bit of each kind. So when we tell you to get more fiber in your diet, if it's for constipation, it's insoluble fiber. If it's more just for health purposes, it's it'll be soluble about fiber. That recently. There's a lot of talk about eating banana peels instead of the actual bananas. Maybe that's part of it, the insolubility? Well, the banana peels are, are one possibility, but I think one that a few more people might be slightly more willing to do, because I, I can't imagine you're going to see a lot of people eating peels and throwing Aha! the banana away. One amount of non-soluble fiber that a lot of people eat are the skins of peaches, right? Those fuzzy fruits. Or you can safely eat the skin of a kiwi, and that will provide you insoluble fiber, while the soluble part is the fruit of the kiwi. So you don't have to peel kiwis to eat them. And I know people always give me strange looks when I just pop the whole thing in my mouth, but you can eat <laughs> the skin. And then for fat intake, usually the same dietary guidelines say recommend keeping your fat intake to 20 to 35% of your total calories. So for a 2000 calorie diet, that's gonna be somewhere between 44 to 77 grams. I'm gonna guess most of you aren't followers of the metric system, which I've known from other episodes. So one pound of meat, you buy just a pound of chopped meat is about 12 grams, okay? So 20% of total calories, well that's fat, but 20% for protein, or 44 grams of protein would be four pounds of meat. That is a lot of meat. So a 2,000 calorie diet is oh, giving yeah. you a ton of food. One last fun fact and then we'll move on. It takes 3,500 calories to equal one pound of body weight. So when you're on your treadmill or you're eating a treadmill off a treadmill, 3,500 calories in either direction is gonna send you up or down depending on what you're doing. But what would a new year be without a reference Victoria! to my favorite historical period? I don't know why I made it sound like that. But I, I... So let's go back to the Victorian era of exploration and talk about competitive <laughs> fasting as a crowd-pleasing really? sport. That was what they That's like awesome. <laughs> In this corner, we have... VG, are you familiar with competitive fasting? I'm I mean, you are. You have worked with a lot of gastric bypass folks. <laughs> My patients don't compete about fasting, but... Maybe, maybe they should. No, no. So the most, the most recent one that in our time that people might know would be David Blaine, who 
if you remember way back in 2003, he was hoisted into position above the Thames River and said he was going to dangle for 44 days, eating nothing, drinking only water. And because it was David Blaine, people didn't really care. But back in Victorian eras, there was a type of sideshow performer known as a hunger artist. And they were as well known as sword swallowers, horse divers, and snake charmers. So they were not human skeletons, which were people who ate but looked like they didn't. And they weren't fasting girls, young women who claimed not to need food thanks to prayer or fairies or subsisting on sunlight. They also weren't aesthetics speak seeking spiritual enlightenment through deprivation. Instead, these competitive hunger artists were men who went without food for weeks at a time simply to prove it could be done. And public fasting back in this day was very much an endurance sport that demonstrated physical prowess, kind of the reverse of weightlifting. That's why it was thought of as a manly thing to do. It had a lot of similarities with extreme long-distance running and this blossomed during a time in Europe and North America when there was a lot of peace. Newspapers were eager to fill their pages with feats of strength and persistence piped in through all those newfangled telegraph machines. So the first well-known faster was known was Dr. Henry Tanner, who performed a 40-day fast in New York in 1880 under the supervision of the U.S. Medical College. And spectators were admitted for 25 cents a ticket, uh, which is the 2016 equivalent of about $6. So cheaper than a movie to go and just watch some guy uh, sit in his rocking chair, mopping his face with damp cloths that were inspected by local butchers to ensure they didn't secretly contain soup. How much of the show would they watch? What's I that? I imagine it'd stay for more than a few hours, no? Dr. Tanner got about 300 to 500 pieces of fan mail a day from people who could not make it in in time, and on the final day of the fast, admission was raised to 50 cents a ticket for a box office take of $2,000. So how long they spent watching a man just be hungry, we don't know. But Tanner also received a $1,000 reward from the Surgeon General, who was convinced that surviving more than 30 days without food was impossible. And after his 40-day fast... Tanner went on to open a successful health clinic where else but Southern California, where he mentored other fasters pursuing both medical and performative excellence. Now, while we can joke about, you know, people who have subsistence fasting or things like that, it's interesting that a lot of what we know today about starvation was learned during this period where men were starving themselves just to prove oh, that they could yeah, do it. Huge. Once the 20th century got underway, public interest in hunger artists sort of tapered off, and Franz Kafka wrote a story about it. And maybe related, maybe not, it's probably not a coincidence that we went from people being impressed by how much someone could fast to, in the early 1900s, the suffragettes and Gandhi and other people started adapting going without food as a political tool and hunger strikes. So once it became a tool of political protest, all of a sudden the fascination with fasting quickly, uh -huh. shall we say, starved away. Again, that's different from people who are anorexic, right? I mean, we, you know, we talk about eating disorders. Correct. Um, these are men and women who, well, it sounds like mostly men, who did it for entertainment. <laughs> it's a show business. They did it for science. They did it for politics. Uh, women mostly did it for politics once they got involved in the game. Men did it to prove they could because why do we do anything? Um, now, 
just so you know, in case anyone out there was going to try and surpass the, the world's record, the highest bar is 78 days without food set by the hero of Hungaros, which sounds like he belongs in Game of Thrones. And and Guinness actually refuses to track the world record for performance oh fasting, probably because they don't want people dying trying to do it. So the only way we see stunt fasting these days are through, are through shows like The Biggest Loser and Celebrity Fit Club. But VG, let's talk back to you and let's talk a little bit about diet and fasting from a health context, because if we think of non-competitive reasons for fasting, our Muslim friends during Ramadan fast for an entire month, and other people will occasionally go on temporary fasts. Is this healthy? What does fasting do to you? What can you tell us about, extreme. you know, dieting at its extreme? Extreme dieting. Um, so, I mean, you've heard the various diets. Intermittent fasting is actually one of the tools that people use for weight loss. Um, when I talk about intermittent fasting, um, a lot of times that people will do this five to two rule where they'll eat regular food five days out of the week, but they'll eat, there'll be two days where they don't consume more than 500 calories. And so overall, their net calorie consumption for the week is down. People will see weight loss with it. What's interesting is that there's been some data where they've seen people who do intermittent fasting lost less lean muscle mass doing that as opposed to just reducing all their calories through the week. I don't think they went through diet recalls carefully enough to understand why, but it was an interesting finding that they noticed. Because when people go on diets and they try to lose weight, they don't just lose fat, they lose muscle also. So this is one of the biggest problems when people are trying to lose weight, especially uh, when people have lost weight, gained weight, lost weight, because every time they lose weight, you lose a bit more muscle, which then affects your metabolism, which is why you always hear it's getting harder to lose weight. So people also do, we call it a fast. There's, you know, a very low calorie diet when we talk about in medical terms, which by the way, should not be done without medical supervision because you're not getting adequate nutrition when you do very low calorie diets. That qualifies about 500 to 600 calories per day. There are medically supervised weight loss programs that'll go down to 800, 900 calories. You've probably heard them in commercial programs where it's something like OptiFast. You'll hear about them and they'll give you food pre-prepared or it'll be protein shakes. And so people can go down that low to 800, 900 calories. They do get a lot of weight loss doing this, but it has to be medically monitored because the heart has to be monitored, EKGs have to be monitored, and blood tests have to be monitored because electrolytes can get altered actually, when people go down that low. So, wow. well, fasting so I is actually, a tool. You know, being in pediatrics, Vigie, um, I didn't see much of this where, you know, fasting was used in, you know, weight loss for children because what we usually say for kids who are obese is, you know, reduce calorie intake, and the nice thing about kids is they're still growing. So they can, you know, they can actually consume the calories in the process of maturing. But one of the interesting things that reminds me of what you're saying when people are fasting and they need to really be monitoring their heart and everything else. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Is in the case of something like anorexia nervosa, which we saw in our teenagers. And this was the same kind of thing, is that not only when they were fasting, but when they were refeeding, was that the electrolytes, so things like sodium and chloride and phosphate and calcium, would just go wacky. And that would cause all kinds of things from the rhythm of the heart to the rhythm of the bowels to... The rhythm of the night. That's a good cut. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. So I I remember very vividly that we'd have to watch that not only when they were starving themselves, but during the refeeding process also. So if you do use fasting as a tool, then do you have to be very careful to ramp back up to the proper number of calories the same way we did with the anorexics? A little bit, yeah. Usually because I'm dealing with (laughs) adults who like to eat. They oh. they refeed themselves just fine. But yes, when people have been really strict following 800, 900 calories, we actually have to gotcha. slowly reintroduce food again. <laughs> Bob, I'd like you to meet Banana. Banana, this is Bob. <laughs> now, Bob, gently take or the not. peel off the banana. And then just no 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 don't don't stuff it all in your mouth at once. The banana had no chance. I'm sorry. The peel of the banana is not bad. I've been told. I don't know if that's right. But we hear a lot about vitamins and how important they are. And you know, you go down the your supplement aisle at Whole Foods. Um, I don't know how much you see this in the ER ward, but I know that you are a very health conscious individual. By which I mean you are healthier than me. <laughs> Not a hard bar, but you do it stunningly. So let's talk a little bit about which vitamins should you actually take and which are just money makers in the health food aisle. Uh, well, in the emergency room, we, like I was, like I was, um, alluding to earlier, uh, the American diet, uh, it's an ever evolving diet. And in 2017, a lot of our foods are fortified. They're fortified with certain vitamins. We're not seeing a lot. I'm, I have not diagnosed a single case of. Yar. Also, I don't 
San Francisco is not a pirate uh, port of entry, so uh, we're not <laughs> we're not seeing a lot of scurvy and pirates and you know vitamin C supplements. I see a lot of people take for when they get a cold or when they expect to catch a cold, and you know the value of taking vitamin C is debatable. Granted, vitamin C is probably not harmful, uh, except in you know extreme extreme overdoses. Its value is 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 questionable. Now, on the other hand, vitamin D deficiency is, that's probably a lot more prevalent in the United States, especially in colder parts of our country, because vitamin D, uh, there's, our body makes it by being exposed to sunlight. And in northern parts of our country, or in parts of our country where we uh, wear sunscreen or cover ourselves up, in the winter, there tends to be a large percentage of the population who are vitamin D deficient. Now, you mentioned massive doses. The only massive dose I remember was from medical school when we learned that <laughs> vitamin A, which you can get by consuming polar bear livers, can do some pretty bad stuff yeah, yeah, in well, huge amounts. I like that. Listen, I retained a lot of weird things from medical school. But you know, oh, So... When you're talking about a megadose, what can what can megadoses of these vitamins do to you, and how much is well, a megadose? Vitamin dependent. Now, uh, vitamin C. I don't remember off the top of my head what is a massive. You know, what is the uh, what is considered technically an overdose? A hundred percent of the daily recommended dose is obviously safe. A little over that, there's no evidence that it's. You know, if you're within the ballpark of a hundred percent of the daily recommended dose, even if you go over by, I don't know. Like, 50%, 100%. That's probably fine. In fact, in some of the supplements, you see people take up to a thousand percent of your daily recommended amount of vitamin C, and most people seem to do fine. That's not recommended, but it doesn't seem to ca- cause a lot of toxicity. I say, if I recall correctly, we we measure megadoses by every vitamin or chemical compound has what's known as an LD50 or a lethal dose that will kill 50% of a population. So for vitamin C, it's uh, 12 grams per kilogram in rat population. So 12 grams <laughs> is enough vitamin C to kill even the hardiest pirate rat. You know, a couple of bites of that polar bear liver is you reach your, you reach your lethal dose right there. So I think I'll start zero just by talking about macronutrients and micronutrients. So macronutrients are the things that we're familiar with that give us those calories that Vicky was talking about. So fats, uh, carbohydrates, and uh, proteins, all of these can be used to get some, you know, rapidly break them down and make ATP, finally, which is what powers most of the machinery in our body. Then you get to these things called micronutrients. And micronutrients are the tiny cofactors which even though they don't provide those calories, they provide extra support allowing all the machinery in our body to work. So between macronutrients and micronutrients, we get everything that a growing body or maybe a not-so-growing body needs uh, in order to survive. So the the vitamins uh, that we are consuming you know vitamin a b c all those kind of things those are our support staff for all of the things that uh, a cell does machinery in order to keep us alive and they uh, we we do very poorly without them 
but we don't necessarily need him to survive. Remember back even further from med school, back to um, high school chemistry class, if you can think chemical reactions, our whole body is a series of chemical reactions where different chemicals interact to build different products, like ATP, which you mentioned. And a lot of times, and to interact for these reactions to happen, there's a key called an enzyme that facilitates these reactions. Now, the cofactors, these vitamins, a lot of times what they do, they help these enzymes function. They sometimes add ingredients to one side of the reaction to increase production of whatever product you're looking for. And so with these vitamins, all these chemical reactions are able to proceed more smoothly or... So if, Viji, are there any vitamins that you recommend for your patients? So I generally say to people that a multivitamin's just fine, depending on calcium and vitamin D, depending on the person, is usually just fine. And depending on a person's diet, I may recommend other supplements. The thing about supplements, supplements include protein shakes, they include vitamins and that big, like, aisle that you walk into the store and there's a bunch of pill bottles and iron and vitamin A, B, C, D, all of them, they're not regulated by the FDA. Um, the government has passed laws where the these companies making these vitamins are supposed to follow good practices, but they're not regulated by anyone. So a lot so of... So it's all on the honor system. It is basically on the honor system. There is a website, if you're interested, called the Consumer Labs. You need... And you need a subscription to it, but they do on their own try try to follow up which companies do follow good practices so that you can make more informed choices about which supplements you're buying. Right. Not the gummy vitamins. I have a patient. She's so cute. She's wondering why she doesn't lose weight, but she keeps oh, eating like a handful of gummy vitamins. Uh, I've always been more of a Flintstones kid myself. We're 10 million strong and growing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they absolutely had sugar. They were like, yeah, yeah. they were, they were closer, so nutritionally, shit. Flintstones vitamins are closer so to Pez than anything <laughs> you were getting. Oh, boy. So, I mean, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna take a little bit of a controversial stance here and tell you that you don't need multivitamins. You can get everything you need, regardless of age, from a balanced diet, meaning one that includes fats, dairy, vegetables, fruits, you know, we our food has already been so fortified that you really don't need these supplements until you get to the very extremes of age. Similarly, you don't really need supplement antioxidants. You can get those from your diet, uh, from fruits, from berries. Probiotics, eh, it doesn't hurt, but there's no definitive proof that you need it, again, separately. Now, we're looking at it for medical treatment in terms of fecal transplants and things like that, but... The only vitamins that really need to be taken, vitamin D, as we said, can't be explained from the diet and, or can't be obtained from the diet. And vitamin D is the sunshine vitamin. 10 to 15 minutes of sunshine three times a week is enough to produce the body's requirement for vitamin D for most people who are living anywhere in a temperate or tropical zone. And Chicago, even though it doesn't feel like it, is a temperate zone. Now, once you get up a little bit further north and you have, you know, months without the sun, that's different. But vitamin D helps the body absorb calcium. You need it for strong bones. 
whereas vitamin C, ascorbic acid, you can get from citrus, promotes healthy yeah. teeth and gums, so hence all the scurvy jokes. It also promotes wound healing. Scurvy is that you'd see gums bleeding, or you'd see old wounds opening back up because the mechanisms that are in place to bind uh, in a fibrous manner your your wounds. They wouldn't exist. You wouldn't have them. right. Vitamin E is an antioxidant that helps the body to form red blood cells. So if you're not getting sufficient vitamin E, you can be a little bit anemic, or you could bleed because vitamin E also helps us create vitamin K. Vitamin K is a clotting vitamin. Without vitamin K, if somebody cuts you, you're going to just keep on bleeding and bleeding and bleeding because your body doesn't know how to react. In terms of stopping colds. Emergency, which was invented by an elementary school teacher, is, pardon my French, a load of crap. You are just throwing money away. If you truly want to shorten colds, one of the supplements that has been scientifically studied and proven is, funnily enough, zinc. Because zinc has been shown to interfere with viral replication. So if you start getting cold, sure, reach for that chicken soup, reach for that glass of orange juice. But if you take zinc, you'll actually be... This causing was, this active disruption culture, to all, viral replication. And secondly, I should put a caveat in here that there was none of this testing really proven in children. And secondly, the effect was to shorten the length of your cold clinically and to relieve the symptoms a little bit subjectively for about, you know, over half of the participants that took it However, there was really no increased side effect profile, which was really awesome. So you, there was no downside to taking it. Um, and, you know, I, I just want to also mention, just because we're here, that so zinc is a mineral rather than a vitamin. So we're venturing a little away from uh, the, the vitamin talk, but still an important cofactor in the mechanicians of our body. I think you could safely say that, yes. Um, of course, the other supplement that actually is good is folic acid, especially if you are pregnant or expecting to become so. If at any point you are unsure about your level of pregnancy, and we could do a whole show just on that, make sure that you are taking folic acid supplements. Um, beyond that, vitamin A helps in form and maintain healthy teeth and bones. Vitamin B6 is important in chemical reactions. A lot of these do perform supplemental ones. But by and large, you really don't need anything from the supplement aisle unless you are a competitive oh, yeah. bodybuilder, which is our inverse of competitive fasters. It's very fair to say. That oh, that's, no, that's not uh, controversial. So, that's just plain good advice. So, VG, why don't you tell us what is a balanced diet? So not a diet you go on in the sense of losing weight, but if I want to have a balanced diet, do I just hold a plate in each hand? Do I do the seafood diet where if I see food, I eat it? What does it mean to balance your diet? Well, ideally, I'm sure everyone's seen this, but it's when you look at a nine-inch plate, the ideal plate looks like this. 50% of your plate should be non-starchy vegetables. A quarter of the plate should be protein, and then a quarter of the plate is reserved for carbohydrates. Now, the tricky part of all of this is how much of the carbohydrates and how much of the protein. For most women, we don't need more than three to four ounces of lean cuts of meat, fish, poultry, tofu, 
can be included in their eggs is included in the protein section. And the really tricky part now becomes the carbohydrates. Most people don't need more than two servings of carbohydrates per meal. Um, and so this is where, you know, people start realizing what foods have carbohydrates in them. The reason why I emphasize carbohydrates so much is that when you think about all the complications that we've been experiencing in the past 30 years from obesity, um, it's diabetes, high cholesterol, now the most common cause of liver transplant is fatty liver, meaning that the body ran out of space to deposit fat, so it's now depositing it in the liver. And also the most common cause for kidney transplant is diabetes. All these root causes are from carbohydrates. Right. We've entered a diet where we eat too many carbohydrates. Yo, 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 Santos, your liver is so fat, it doesn't have carbohydrates. It has monster truckohydrates. So we, we're learning about new things in medicine all the time. Is it fair to say that this is a fairly new understanding of what's going on in, uh, in the field of medicine? Is Because I do know that you know if you were to go a little while back into that good old food pyramid, you would not see something like this layout that you talked about on your plate. And even recently, I think the FDA had released something where there was a bit more of carbohydrates than what you were talking about. But I, I think all of us here would wholly agree with what, you, what you're telling us should be our, um, our intake. Absolutely. So they've actually moved away from the food pyramid. If you go onto the FDA website, I think it's called myplate.gov. Um, the recommendations have changed what it looks like. I have a, I have a different opinion on what the plate should look like. On my plate, they recommend okay. fruits and vegetables to be on the same half of the plate, but I think fruits are separate. Okay. Um, fruits do count towards carbohydrates in my personal opinion. Um, <laughs> And so All that's right, where that's... me and the government are disagreeing right now. But... <laughs> that's okay, VG. A lot of people are disagreeing with the government right now. <laughs> so here's a fun little thing. Let's let's bring some travel back into this. Have any I of have you not. ever been to the delightful country of Whoa. Sweden? Yeah. Well, there is a Swedish custom called Lordags Lordags Godis or Saturday candy which uh, children in Sweden actually only eat candy once a week. The idea behind it is moderation. You limit candy consumption to a weekly rather than a daily occurrence. So once a week, they're given a free pass to indulge in all the gummies, chocolates, and salty licorice that their Nordic hearts desire. While this sounds like a very charming sort of tradition, and if you go and visit Sweden, you'll see on Saturday all the kids are running to the candy stores, which the rest of the week are pretty much. And Swedish people, and I bring this up, because the lasting legacy of this, Swedes love candy. They consume more candy per capita than anyone else in the country. And this is off a U.S. news survey that looked at, you know, pounds of candy per year. But annoyingly, they consume more candy oh. per capita than anyone attaining one of the highest levels of dental me. health in the world. Whoa. Else, but here's where it's going to turn a little dark. The reason Swedes have this tradition of Saturday candy, and I don't think even a lot of them know about it, 
is because of what's known as the Vipholm experiments. That has a good James Bond villainy name to it. Oh no, what's the Vipholm experiment? In 1946, at a mental hospital, researchers forced a group of 660 patients to ingest 24 pieces of a sticky light brown substance in a single day. These severely mentally disabled patients were involuntary participants in a long-term study commissioned by the state medical board in cooperation with industry, and this coerced feeding of this sticky light brown substance, surprise, caramel, would continue for three years. And this was not done for a purpose of a benefit to the patient. Instead, the goal was to measure the damage inflicted by the substance over time and determine a dosage safe for public consumption. So they force-fed mentally disabled people caramel candy just to see how much you could eat before it started causing problems. And these Vipolm experiments ended up getting lumped in under the Nuremberg Code, which is, of course, the Nazi medical experimentation laws that prevent. So the they are lumped under the Nuremberg Code, and of the four state mental institutions, Vipolm housed all the people that were uneducatable, patients who couldn't dress themselves, were tied to their beds. And the initial study focused on vitamins and then began this carbohydrate study. So one group had sugar in a solution, one group had sugary bread at meals, the last group was given toffee, and the the caramels had been specially formulated for stickiness so they would cling to teeth and gums. So all this is how we learned a lot about dental health. And it did identify a link between sugar consumption and tooth decay with a lot of ethical problems in it. Late in the 70s, the Council for War Crimes adopted the... I'm sorry, in 1947, the Council for War Crimes adopted the Nuremberg Code. And these principles were later incorporated into the Declaration of Helsinki. And then in 1957, there was a public health campaign that (laughs) basically told Swedes, brush your teeth and eat all the sweets you like. But only once a week. <laughs> Little historical... Uh, scary to know that even they had uh, a dark time. When, when I compared them to uh, their Tuskegee, I guess that's not... Uh, I don't know. Can you compare tooth decay to syphilis? Anybody? Tooth decay? <laughs> We're giving a whole bunch of people and syphilis and not telling them. We're force-feeding yeah, I, I mentally disabled people candy. False equivalent. The point is it was still an unethical experiment which a lot of people, even in the country, are completely (laughs) unaware of. And I only found out about because I can't help myself. I just, I love my trivia. Um, So that, that wraps up sort of the, the educational, nutritional part of our show. But of course, we always love talking about travel. And as long as we're over in Sweden, and I'll get a travel story from Viji, in just a moment, but let me ask you guys about two things. Oh, One, who's watching the show, or who watched the HBO show I, Westworld? My understanding is it's basically a, a fantasy world that's created um, on a small scale that people can just sort of enter and, the, and meet engineered or stimulated people that interact with them. Um, and they do this for their own amusement. Kind of like a real-life choose-your-own-adventure sort of scenario. But um, basically these characters, these engineered characters, um, start to develop their own thought process and start to rebel. That's my 
understanding, at least right now. Yeah, so it's a Wild West theme park staffed by robots where you can take whatever actions you like without repercussion. Well, for anyone out in the world who'd like to visit the a real Westworld, Sweden is your go-to place because there is, in the town of Nozjo, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, the town of Nozjo in Sweden is home to the High Chaparral Wild West theme park. So you can actually go visit a theme park that dedicated to the lost American era of gunfighters, bandits, Indians, and steam trains. You can cozy up to gunfighters and saloon keepers, pan for gold, watch Indian dances, and even yeah. hunt bison. And this is still... I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe they're robot bison. You, you'd have to look it up. But it's... It is a home to daily shows and reenactments. You can meet cowboys, Indians, Mexicans, and Zorro. Uh, there's also gunfighting shows and old-timey construction demonstrations. And I love the idea awesome. that one of the best places to experience the Wild West is in Sweden. And specifically the Wild American West. So there is, there is my travel tip. But, VG, we always love to kind of speak with our guests because we do a lot of health, but we also like going around the world. So do not feel like you have to confine yourself to Sweden since... You haven't been, but what is one place anywhere in the world, no matter how big or small, that you can tell us a travel story from and recommend people to go to? I have a story. It's not very interesting. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I didn't realize how long cricket takes. Uh, so we went to Malaysia. And my family thought it would be a brilliant idea to see a cricket match. Now, mind you, I grew up in the United States. I don't know anything about cricket, even though I have family members that watch it religiously. <laughs> I had well, no idea it takes three, four days for a cricket match. And we just sat there in the blazing sun watching this game where you hit. No, no, not <laughs> even in circles, right? Back and forth. You're just running time. around in circles. You know, I can't Back and forth, back and forth. But Malaysia is a beautiful country. It is very, you know, it's actually a lot more diverse than I anticipated when I went there. They spoke all different languages. It's very tropical. It's sort of like a Hawaii-esque feel to it, but obviously with different language and different food completely. We were in Kuala Lumpur. That's the first time my mother ate meat. It was really actually quite entertaining oh, to watch oh, when no, she discovered she, she had shrimp in her mouth. And she started spitting it out in a restaurant. It was great. So what else did you see in Kuala Lumpur besides, or did you spend all your time at that cricket game? <laughs> a lot of it was spent at the cricket game. But my family's really into, like, gardens and, like, outdoor stuff. And they're, they're really big on, just like Singapore is, on, like, big, tall buildings. Like, the architecture's really interesting. Did you get a chance to go up to Petronas Towers, which was, uh, for a time, one of the tallest buildings in the world? We did go up. It was pretty, like, my ears were popping all the way up. It was crazy. I can't believe how high up they built these buildings. Wow, is there another type of So. So there's a lovely view, a lovely view from Petronas Towers, and near the bottom of the towers is the Kuala Lumpur Aquarium. Dr. Josh has, in my opinion, a legitimate fear 
of beaches and oceans. The shore, as well as the ocean itself, has tried to kill him on numerous occasions to dive with the sharks in a place. But... Uh, I think that shows you how awesome it is, because he's talking about a place that is actively trying to kill him, and then, you know, talking about a spectacular uh, experience in that part of the world. <laughs> Kuala Lumpur has a lot to offer. VG, what else did you see there? What's something you went and saw besides cricket and Petronas Towers? You know, tell, take us through one of your travel experiences. <laughs> Funny thing is, is that, you know, we actually only went there as a layover because we were flying to India, but I remember Malaysia more than I remember India during that trip for whatever reason. But then most of it was spent watching this cricket uh, game, so I don't even see, have no, it's very funny to hear this perspective there are people who'd be like, dude, I had the best time. I watched a cricket test match. Oh yeah, three days, you know, Malaysia versus India or Malaysia versus Pakistan or something like that. And I got to see this star and that star and we had tea time. Oh, did you stick around for cricket? No, I wanted to go home. And I think that is a perfect place to end. Uh We started this episode with going to the gym and we ended with cricket by Jiminy. So that is, that is our episode on health and nutrition. VG, thank you so much for joining us, and I would love to have you back on in the future to pick your brain about all the other endocrine things that we are curious about and could explain to people. So So depending where they live in the area, there's actually a website where they keep track of all the physicians who are board certified in physician nutrition specialists. So what they can do is they can actually look up physician nutrition specialists Wonderful. and they have a list of all the board certified physicians UCLA. in this in each state. Before I cut to our outro, I do want to take this moment to say a heartfelt thank you to our very first out non-family Patreon donor, Rebecca Gamble. Thank you so much for your financial support. Because that's going to help make this show even better. Everyone, I encourage you to follow Rebecca's stunning example. Donate as much or as little as you like to us. And for those of you who did donate, this month the bonus feature on Patreon is a song clip from when I was in a heavy metal band. Cue the outro. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. With the help, with a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories, thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.